Hello and welcome back to Take 97, a film podcast with me, your host, David Ingram. On today's episode, I continue my cinematic journey through the decades once more by giving you another top five picks of my favourite films from a specific decade. Today, I shall be talking to you all about the 1990s. Now, this is an era where we're now starting to come a little bit more closer to films that I have actually been able to watch in the cinema. Once we get into the 2000s, truly, I will be in my element. But for now, these are my top five picks of the 1990s. If you're new to this, don't worry. Ultimately, this is a series which will pick five films from each decade, and then the number one pick will be put into an overall top ten at the end of the series. Now, today's episode, the 1990s, it's, it's a bit of a mixed bag, I'm not going to lie to you. It's quite a mixed bag, and I think, again, this is probably very personal to me. There are many films that were really great in the 1990s, I'll give a shout out to some that I haven't included in this list, but that were great anyway. The likes of Fight Club, The Matrix, but I do think that these ones are just ones that I've personally enjoyed either because I've discovered them recently or I've grown up watching them after their initial release, pretty much not long after, about 10 years after or so in the 2000s. Let's just get started on the episode. Number five is an interesting choice. Because the 1980s episode, I started off with, you know, quite a mixed bag with that episode. And this one is very much the same. And there's a director who did contribute something to the previous episode. And that is David Lynch. And this is a film that really does go with the expectations, then, shall we say, of what David Lynch film is. But this one, it's not the one that you might think. Lost Highway, you know, that's a good one, 1997. Very interesting film. Twin Peaks, the TV series itself was great. And Fire Walk With Me, an interesting prequel sequel to the TV show from 1992. Again, really good film, but not the one that I've picked today. So the David Lynch film that I picked for this episode, in at number five, Wild at Heart, released in 1990. Now, some people might be thinking, that's a bizarre choice. You could have picked Lost Highway. But for me, I do like a good road movie. I love... Easy Rider from the 1960s, and I love, you know, stuff like Bonnie and Clyde and films like that. Generally, road movies are quite fun because you get to play with them, and even going back to film noir, Detour, which is like a road movie in itself, is a very interesting film to watch and just see how characters progress in their journey on an actual road and into the rest of the story. Wild at Heart is described as like a black comedy romance fantasy and it's a very strange film it's not something that i'm going to delve into too much today in terms of what it is but essentially we are introduced to two characters nicholas cage plays a character called sailor ripley and laura dern a david lynch regular is a character called lula pace fortune she is obviously pretty much well known for being in twin peaks and several other productions that are led by david lynch other people might know her for her role in Jurassic Park in the first couple of films as well as one of the original members of the cast along with Sam Neill and such. But in this film, they are kind of, I mentioned Bonnie and Clyde, they play a Bonnie and Clyde-like duo in this. Sailor Ripley, played by Cage, he's just got out of prison at the beginning of the film after attacking, attacking someone who tried to kill him and there's a bit of a kerfuffle in his past. It's explained a little bit in a kind of an expositional way. But this is just the way that we get introduced to him. He, he's an ex-con, he gets let out of prison, and Laura Dern's character, Lula, 
she's there to welcome him with open arms with this lovely luxurious vintage car and david lynch loves his film noir and his 1950s influences and this can be seen very clearly in the stylistic choices of the film particularly because it's got such a retro feel to it and the film itself it cites influences from both the wizard of oz and also elvis presley and elvis presley's films and it's just a strange interesting it's a road movie to start with basically they go on the run from lula's mother she doesn't like her daughter associating herself with sailor ripley who is known about town as being a bad boy and being a troublemaker ultimately and she doesn't want her daughter associating with him so we get this you know a bit of a rebellious road movie and you get to just see their exploits the film essentially is quite simple and could be quite seen as quite boring but the visual storytelling of this like the wide vistas of the open desert landscapes and some other areas that they visit on their little mini road trip you know that's really well shot it kind of reminds me it gives me sort of vibes of badlands a little bit and as well as easy rider as well the way that the landscape of uh, america has been painted it's just really beautifully articulated and you've got this nice 50s cadillac type car going through the middle of it nicholas cage's character is so eccentric with his snakeskin jacket uh, and he just you know they make a because i think they he gets out of prison that he makes a promise that they'll go and see a band they go to see a band called power mad i think they are a genuine real band as well uh, a speed metal band him and lula go and see this band things go a little bit awry which then leads to them be going on the run from the police because he broke his conditions of bail but before they do go on the run he does do one of my personal highlights from the film he performs a elvis song he performs the song love me with the band and it's a very sensual very interesting slow-paced song sailor is a wannabe elvis presley fan really he's a wannabe elvis presley impersonator and he loves the performance and you know the nuances that nick cage brings to this is so so good like i don't understand like some people don't like nick cage because he's very weird and selective over his projects he does a lot of out there projects like for instance he did the sci-fi thriller based film of color color in space it's just a you know he's a very selective actor and lots of people know him for several really funny roles and interesting roles that are very his characters are off the wall and out there very much like sailor ripley in this film but i think overall nicholas cage gives a brilliant performance as a wannabe elvis rebel just trying to impress his girlfriend uh, there's an interesting little detail which i love as well about this you know they're on the run for the police and that's the long short end of it and it's just a road movie if you like road movies i highly encourage you to watch this but i would say that one of the coolest and slightly weirdest moments in the film is when all seems lost he's he's left lula behind and he gets this vision he gets into a fight with a little gang of people he's getting really you know showing his true colors as a violent thug and then he ends up getting i think he gets knocked out and then next thing you know he sees this vision of a version of glinda the good witch as in like the wizard of oz kind of good witch but she's credited in the credits as the good witch i would have called her more of an angel really to be honest like a trick of the mind uh, but she's played interestingly by the actress cheryl lee who for anyone who is a fan of david lynch's work will know just a year later she would star in twin peaks 
as the infamous Laura Palmer, the teenage girl who was killed and everybody was like, who killed Laura Palmer? So it's very strange. And whilst people, like, it's been confirmed, sort of, unquote, confirmed, that Lost Highway is in the same universe as Twin Peaks, I would hesitate to believe that Wild at Heart is in the same universe as Twin Peaks as well. Because I reckon, you know, spoilers ahead, anyone who hasn't seen Twin Peaks, do not listen to what I'm about to say for the next, like, 30 seconds. But I think with this, you know, Laura Palmer goes to some sort of heavenly place, and there's a moment in Fire Walk with me as well, where she sees an angel that protects her. In this, she plays some sort of an angel-type character, all dressed in white. I can't help but think that maybe that's a version of Laura Palmer reincarnated. That's my little theory for you, that Laura Palmer basically goes goes to the Black Lodge and everything goes a bit awry and she ends up crossing over into this other universe where she meets Sailor Ripley and, and empowers him to make the right decision and go after the girl and don't give up on love. And that's essentially it. It's a love story, really, wild at heart. But what else can I say about that film? It's a very strange film. It's shot very well. It's got lots of film noir aesthetics in both the stylistic 50s appeal, the Elvis references... And a nice weird Wizard of Oz connection as well. If anyone's a fan of David Lynch, I highly encourage you to watch this. as It's probably his, again, I said this about The Elephant Man, his least surreal film, In even though it's got a little bit of surreal notions in it. But I do feel that, you know, Wild at Heart is an easy watch compared to the likes of Lost Highway and definitely Mulholland Drive, which have got much more deeper, complex undertones in their plots and themes. Whereas this seems a little bit more fluffy but I would say give it a chance. So yeah, David Lynch's 1990 film, Wild at Heart. If anything, just watch it to hear Nicolas Cage sing, because it's an interesting thing to watch, so I'd suggest that. That's my number five pick. In at number four, though, is another film from the year 1990, and this film is a film directed by Jerry Zucker, not a film that would appear on most people's top ten or top five lists, but I do think that this one deserves some sort of recognition because it's such an enjoyable film. And some people think, oh, it's just a soppy romance film because of that one scene and that one song. But I think that it's definitely worth the watch. It's a film that stars Patrick Swayze as a character called Sam Wheat, Demi Moore as Molly Jensen, and Whoopi Goldberg as the charismatic Oda Mae Brown. If anyone hasn't guessed what film I'm on about yet, I will tell you now. The film I'm on about at my number four position is Ghost. Ghost is a very interesting film because it's a romance film, but it's got supernatural fantasy-based elements in it because the short long of it all is that this film centers around Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore's characters, Sam and Molly, a boyfriend-girlfriend. They move into this apartment with the help of their friend and Sam's co-worker, Carl Bruner. They try and do fix this place up. It's a really big warehouse-style apartment in New York City. Again, my love for New York City never ends. But this film is really creepy at the beginning because you see these three people opening up this dusty old apartment and they furnish it to make it their own home. You think it's really cheesy because of the fact that it's a you know, boyfriend-girlfriend moving in and it's set in New York City. Why is it called Ghost? Well... Patrick Swayze's character of Sam Wheat, he gets killed after walking back home with his girlfriend Molly 
by this guy called Willie Lopez, who we discover a little bit more about why he killed Sam later on. But he gets killed by that guy in this dark street, side street of New York City, and in Man in the Manhattan district. And he just it's really strange you think oh god and we're only about i want to say we're only about maybe 15 minutes into the film maybe even 10 not not, not too longer into the film but our main character our lead he- hero has just been killed on screen what are we here for but then we discover we see patrick swayze's character we see sam standing there on the street as if nothing's happened and you're like what's happened did he just push him off did he get rid of him he goes chasing after so he goes out of camera and we see him chasing after the guy who who has killed him but you think what's going on he clearly got stabbed what's going on there and he turns back and he discovers that he is dead and that he's standing there as a ghost watching over his body and he tries to like there's some weird bright light tries to take him away but it doesn't take him away and it's kind of going along with that idea that ghosts don't fully pass over to the next side of the afterlife and if they've got some unfinished business to attend to in the real world uh, something that was explored in a comedy called i think it was ghost town with ricky gervais very badly and also the same thing applies in uh, the film the sixth sense by m night Shyamalan, where spirits hang around because they have unfinished business to attend to and in this case sam needs to find out who killed him and he also needs to protect his girlfriend molly from a threat and he discovers obviously the short end of it is there's a bit of betrayal here and there i'm not going to spoil it too much for you because there's a bit of a a plot twist in here which i don't want to give away but he does track down who killed him and essentially we get to see him go through walls he can see molly and everybody else around him but no one can hear him and this is where it brings in one of my highlights from the film is whoopi goldberg as odame brown a psychic sort of opportunist an opportunist psychic then who professes to be able to talk to the dead she has her own business like that and she pretends basically cons people out of their money to talk to their dead relatives even though she can't actually talk to them but then she discovers that all of a sudden she can hear a dead person's voice and although she can't see sam she can hear him so she does possess some kind of psychic ability albeit only in this one occasion And then we get some funny comedy moments where Sam, a ghost, can go into somebody's body and possess them and talk through them. And we get some funny moments like that with Whoopi Goldberg's character, who, to be honest, I think does a brilliant job in this film. She does an absolutely fantastic job overall in this performance as the zany Odame. You know, she really is in it for herself and she, you know, she just wants to get rid of Sam at the end of the day because he won't shut up and won't leave her alone because she's the only person that can hear him. They sort of get back together with Molly, and they, even though it seems a bit crazy, convince Molly that Sam's still alive in some respect, and the long end of it is they track down his killer. It's a very strange, weird, simple film, with the romance element in it as well. Like, everyone knows the scene before Sam gets killed, with Molly and him sat doing pottery, because Molly's into pottery. So she sat there, and they're doing the pot, and it's the Righteous Brothers song, unchained melody everybody knows that i'm pretty sure everybody in the 90s was obsessed with that so i i hear and read everyone was obsessed with that part of the film and all it's like the ultimate romantic recreation that everyone wanted to do in those days but yeah that's a highlight from the film the romantic section before all the drama kicks off some of the the actual special effects of this i think they were based i think 
ILM, I want to say, like related to the George Lucas special effects company place or Lightworks or something. They were really good for their time. For the 1990s, the computer effects were really good to show Patrick Swayze putting his hand through people, being walked through as a ghost, going through walls to you know do what he wants to do there's a really cool scene where he's i can't remember the actor's name but he's a really really cool actor he plays the old really grouchy ghost on the sub new york subway and he has a specific train and he sticks around on that train and he basically teaches sam how to control his ghostly abilities and effectively touch things that mean he can interact with the real world whilst also still being ghostly and not being seen so for instance just something as simple as kicking a can over he teaches him how to do that and it's all to do with emotion anger and really harnessing that power Uh, and it's just you know you can read lots into that into ghost and you know there's a bank scheme going on between the lines at the place where sam used to work at this bank which is kind of related to why he was killed but i'm not going to give you too much more information on that i'll let you watch the film but i'd say ghost is a it's romantic, it's sensual, it's got some funny supernatural moments in there, you know, Whoopi Goldberg, what more can I say? She's a brilliant actress overall, and Demi Moore does really good performance in this film. I mean, it's the only film I really remember Demi Moore for, but I think she does a cracking job in this, and Patrick Swayze, the late great Patrick Swayze, other than his role in Donnie Darko and Dirty Dancing, you know, there's a couple of other films that Patrick Swayze's been in, but like, those are my sort of ones that I remember Patrick Swayze for but I would say Ghost is tied with Dirty Dancing a great 80s film and now he's in this you know as the great romantic icon of the 1990s especially in this film but overall a fun romantic sensual romp and I couldn't recommend that one anymore really if you fancy a bit of fun and you know just something more enjoyable but moving on to my third pick of the episode Number three is an interesting film because it's going into something that everybody knows and loves right now. Everybody loves Batman and the DC comic characters with the recent events of the Snyder Cut of Justice League. People are starting to really become more into DC. Now Marvel's slowly... I mean, Marvel's still relevant, kind of, but we've had the big thing of Endgame. And people are starting to look back to... DC a bit more now with the new Suicide Squad on its way out as of the recording of this episode with James Gunn at the helm and Margot Robbie. I looked to Batman from my number three pick because he's Batman and it's my personal favourite Batman that is in this rank. It's the 1992 Tim Burton film Batman Returns starring Michael Keating as Batman. It's my favourite Batman film. Lots of people will think oh you just like Batman Returns because of Michelle Pfeiffer. That's not 100% true. Michelle Pfeiffer is one of the highlights, one of the many highlights of Batman Returns. She does a brilliant performance as Catwoman. I don't think anyone's really rivaled or matched her performance to this day. Halle Berry's was rubbish. It was terrible. The performance by, I can't remember her name now, Cameron, I think her name is, from the TV series Gotham. She was okay as like a younger version of Selina Kyle and Catwoman, but I think the only person to have truly mastered Catwoman was Michelle Pfeiffer. And she really, because Batman's all about split personalities and dual roles, the first film in 1989 with Jack Nicholson, he starts off as Jack Napier, and then he becomes 
the Joker, you know, you've had two different versions of that Jack. You got Batman and Bruce Wayne, which you still have in this film. And then you get Oswald Cobblepot, also known as the Penguin, who, you know, that's his real identity. But then he's known as the Penguin, the two different things put together. And at the same time, you've also got the two faces of Christopher Walken's amazing evil mastermind, Max Shrek. I say evil mastermind. He's not really. He's just a very, you know, he's one of those classic businessman figures who's just out to be, you know, get corporate greed out there and rake in the money. But he's very much two-faced in the sense that he can be really nice to the public, but then also be very dastardly and evil. And that's how, obviously, that's one of the highlights leading to the transformation of Selena Kyle, his nervous, sort of jittery secretary, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, her being pushed out the window and then being surrounded by cats and all of a sudden turning into Catwoman. It's a bizarre, I still don't understand how, like there's probably something really deeper in the creation of Catwoman, but it kind of happens in Gotham as well in a TV series with Selina Kyle. I don't understand how a load of cats nibbling or licking at you turns you into Catwoman or gives you cat powers or anything, but you know, that's for DC to explain, not me. <laughs> I mean, I'm probably not understanding something there, but you know, I just think her mindset, definitely that knock on the head, definitely trips something into another gear. And her relationship with Michael Keaton, who is my favourite Batman, their relationship in this film, Batman Returns, is just so, it's so good because you've got Bruce Wayne and Selina Kyle being interested in each other. And you've got Batman and Catwoman being in opposition against each other, but then kind of becoming a little bit more allied with each other by the end of the film. And obviously, they do work out each other's identities at one point, but that's really the end of that, really, because the relationship between them as you go through the film is such a back and forth, back and forth, both between each of their respective personalities, the Batman, the Catwoman, Bruce Wayne, Selina Kyle. It, it works really well. Uh, so you've got that little play at work. And in also in this, you know, it's styled like an old really classic film noir but in color i love the stylistics of this i love the style of the production design in the first batman film with michael keaton but i do think that with time and with a little bit more planning i think the what tim burton wanted to bring to batman and the universe of batman really came to life in this second one because it looks much more noir the city look looks a little bit more i don't know lived in and even though it kind of looks soundstage based in a lot of respects, which it does, it, I think that's what it's meant to look like, is a brilliant film to really represent the dark, shadowy nature of the character of Batman, moving away from the comical side of things, which we'd seen in the Adam West TV show and other versions of the character. We were starting to get this night, dark, gritty portrayal, not as gritty as The Dark Knight from the Christopher Nolan trilogy or even Ben Affleck in the later films of recent days. But I think that the ultimate message of this is that Keaton's starting it all and he's my favourite Batman. But then in the middle of all this, you've got Catwoman and Batman against each other and you've got the Penguin. And that's where the film begins. The film begins with like a Christmas scene, a woman giving birth, a rich aristocratic woman giving birth. And we don't see anything else other than this flipper hand grabbing at the like the bars of this little pram cage thing. And you think, ooh, that's, that's ow, horrible, very strange. What is that? And obviously we learn that's the penguin and the penguin's parents disowned him because he was deformed 
and he didn't look like what they had imagined him to look like so they essentially did a a Moses on him and put him into a basket and sent him away except this was for much more harsher reasons because he was not their ideal image of what a child should look like and he was abandoned and he ended up being taken in by a circus to a circus family and adopted by penguins in an underground sewer. The film goes through how Penguin adopts to real life outside of the sewers, outside the circus and just really integrating him into the world and then obviously he wants to cause some sort of trouble, gain revenge on those people who think they've disowned him from society. He does sort of try to be a good person, finding out who his parents were, be a sincere person. He gets involved into politics because of Max Shrek. Max Shrek leads him into this whole deep underworld of politics and eventually things snap and he turns into the evil bad penguin that we know. And I think the penguin, the bat and the cat, I think that's what one of the posters says as well. Three iconic images of DC Comics together in one film. I don't think we've had that for a very long time without it being massively overdone like even in marvel films you don't other than like the avengers films or like avengers infinity war endgame you don't get that massive team up of like even villains actually like you get a couple of villains maybe but you don't get massively like that three-way dynamic between a hero an anti-hero so catwoman and then a proper villain like penguin you don't get that dynamic where catwoman starts off as just exploring who she is, getting revenge on those who wronged her, thinking she was a simpleton as Selina Kyle. And then she turns her attention to Batman, teaming up with Batman. It's, you know, overall, it's a big power struggle throughout. And the stylistics of it, it's very 1940s noir, but in colour, dark, shadowy lighting. The Batman theme and the music and everything done by Danny Elfman, the score is amazing. But overall, that's why I love it. Danny DeVito does a brilliant job. He's very well partnered with uh, with the likes of Tim Burton, but I think we owe a lot of Batman's current presence to Michael Keaton. That's my personal opinion on this, and I'm going to end it on that, really, because there's nothing more I can say other than the... Oh, and additionally, there's Michael Goff as well, as Alfred Pennyworth, the butler. He He's actually the butler in pretty much all the Tim Burton either directed or executive produced films. I, I think he's the only constant person within the universe then of those four batman films i could be wrong i think he might be in the first three maybe not the fourth one but the less said about those the better but i would say batman returns ultimately it's dark it's gritty it's strange it's a bit gruesome it's a bit creepy but i really do enjoy it overall so 1992 tim burton film with michael keating at the helm batman returns is definitely the film that i love the most out of all of those older films pre dark knight trilogy but moving on to number two of my list, and it's very ironic, this one, because number two, uh, this is a Pixar film, just to state as well. They had the characters, I've forgotten what their names are now, but the character, Heimlich, I think, Heimlich the Caterpillar, he's there in the end credit scene of this film going, oh, it's a two movie. And this is a two movie that's in at number two, and it's Toy Story 2, directed by John Lasseter and headed by the entire Pixar team. You know, Pete Doctor, Lee Unkrich, you know, all those guys that have got to work on the Toy Stories in some capacity. I have picked number two because obviously there is number one. I could have picked number one from 1995, but ultimately I think that Toy Story 2 from 1999 is my favourite Toy Story. And I think it, it stands out as most people's favourite because of some of the emotional connections and it builds on the universe that we already knew. Because the first film's only 78 minutes long, I think 
whereas the second one goes as far as to be closer to that 90 minute mark and i think that we're established in the relationships we don't get to see buzz and woody in opposition to each other buzz and woody so just to state as well for anyone who doesn't know toy story animated film about toys that come to life when their owners aren't watching it possesses the amazing voice talent of tom hanks as woody the cowboy doll tim allen as our favorite space toy buzz lightyear and also we get introduced to a couple of others as well so we've got the likes of potato head already in the gang ham the piggy bank we've got rex the dinosaur we've got a mrs potato head as well as joined the cast as well just an amazing new addition to the team to go with mr potato head we see the army men once more yeah all your favorite characters are back and then we're introduced to the likes of new characters such as joan cusack's voice in the lovely and wonderfully sweet and incredibly funny as well uh jesse the cowgirl doll who is part of a set from an old tv 50s tv show that woody is also based on kelsey grammar gives his voice to stinky pete the prospector who's our villain for the piece kind of on and off uh, and then we got bullseye who doesn't actually speak but the loyal horse of woody and ultimately you know i've told you that stinky pete has some villainous parts in it there's lots of dark sides to the toys and yeah, we get an appearance of Emperor Zurg, who is the arch enemy of Buzz Lightyear, who we don't actually see in the first film. The first film it's mentioned, but we never meet him. And this film delves more into the character's own personal arcs as because Woody is a you can tell he's an old toy and cowboys are very much a thing of the 50s. So the thing with Toy Story 2 is it delves into that and we get to see his history. But in that we get introduced to all these new characters. This film follows our established band of heroes, Buzz, Woody. Woody gets separated from the toys because he goes to save another toy from a yard sale from being sold because uh, he's a penguin toy, squeaky little thing that's getting put away into a junk box. And in the process, he ends up getting taken by the evil Al. Al from Al's Toy Barn. This evil, grossly fat man with barely any hair left. Uh, who loves Watsits or you know, cheese puffs, whatever you guys want to call them, those orange crisp things that people eat, depending on where you come from, what you call those. He's just an evil villain in a chicken suit who owns like a in, responsible for all a big toy chain. Uh, and that's how we get into one of the other set pieces later in the film. But he's the main villain and takes Woody away. And he wants to sell him as a set to this museum in Japan, along with, like I said, Jesse, Bullseye and Stinky Pete. And we sort of end up sort of bringing in this existential question of the first one brings up all oh, Buzz coming to terms with the fact that he is a toy and he's not real, even though he believes he's real. But the second one really is all about how toys feel about being left behind and what happens to them when their owners leave them behind and they have no use for them. This is something that's picked up on even more in the third and the fourth films. It's repeated a little bit, admittedly, but in slightly different ways but we get to see you know does woody want to stay with andy forever his owner andy andy won't take him to college willing so it answered in the third film but we get to see the consequences of what happens when someone a child loses interest in a toy and that is in the form of jesse and one of the things that i love about toy story 2 is the emotional impact of this and you know you've got all this existential feeling of what is a toy's purpose once they are no longer needed to be played with by a child when a child's all grown up and we see that happen in this beautiful montage with um, She Loved Me or She Loves Me, a lovely, beautiful song in the background to this rose-tinted summer 
colour palette based sequence where we have a child called Emily who used to own Jessie the Cowgirl doll and we see how she gets abandoned and put into a box for sale in like a like a jumble sale before she gets to the point that we meet her in the film. We learn about her issues of being inside boxes in claustrophobic spaces. I think Jessie's quite a relatable character, quite, you know, even though she's a toy, we all feel that sense of dread of, are we going to outlive our purpose? What is, what happens to us when we are done with our purpose? And I think with Toy Story 2, you get that emotional impact, but then you're reminded of how you're always going to be needed and there's always going to be something. Even when someone's gone, you'll be remembered. You'll have created fond memories for that person. It's just about moving on and embracing the here and now before you get to that end game and rather than dreading it. And then obviously you've got all the hijinks of loads of set pieces so trying to get back to Andy's is one thing there's a lovely bit before I conclude Toy Story 2 there's a lovely section with the toy store Al's toy barn and we meet a second Buzz Lightyear figure with a new belt the fun just ensues from there cannot tell you how much I love the squabbling between the two buzzes and then kind of the stupidity of the other toys slinky and such thinking that Buzz that they're with is real Buzz we get introduced to Barbie dolls as well into the universe as well I mean, anybody who doesn't really like Toy Story, you've got to be a certain type of person to not like it. So I would say it's a real good family film, and I highly encourage anyone to watch any of the Toy Story films, all of them, because it's a good saga, and they're just generally really enjoyable. Plus, I grew up with them, so that's why I love them so much. So I'd say absolutely go for it. Check out Toy Story 2, 1999 film, a very fun but also emotional film as well. But lastly is my number one pick for the 1990s from 1997 directed by quentin tarantino this film that i have picked for my number one spot is jackie brown because it's an action-packed film very well written very well acted it's based on a book called rum punch and it's a very it's an interesting film because tarantino although i would say it's tarantino's probably best film from his early career if not overall up with up there with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Pulp Fiction, and the likes of that, I would say that, you know, he doesn't have a high opinion of it because it wasn't very original to him. It's one of his very few really hardcore adaptations of an actual book, and I think he does it perfectly. The film stars Pam Greer as the title character, Jackie Brown. She delivers a powerhouse performance from start to finish, a real true heroine of the time. I'd put her up there with the likes of Sigourney Weaver in Alien and the Alien franchise. She is just such a powerhouse. She's known for some black exploitation films as well in the early in her early career in the nineteen seventies. And she was meant to be in Pulp Fiction in a scene with the with Winston Walt, played by Harvey Keitel, but they didn't quite get to do it. And he did say, Oh, I'll write a film for you and Quentin Tarantino delivered and he wrote a film all for Pam Greer. She is a flight attendant, it's set in the 90s, it's very much rooted in the 1990s, but at the same time, it doesn't date much, and I, I love it. And this is the second entry on the list to feature Michael Keaton, has a character called Ray Nicolette. Uh, he's part of the drug squad, part branched onto the LAPD. Uh, he kind of sets up a deal with Jackie Brown to catch this big drug crime lord, Ordell Robbie, played by Samuel Jackson, <laughs> with a very strange ponytail. He does delivers a classic performance. I would say it's up there with his Pulp Fiction performance, but obviously Pulp Fiction, you can't beat Jules. 
And the film also co-stars Robert De Niro as a character called Louis Gara. I think his name's Louis or Louis. So him and Samuel Jackson partnered together to pull off this big heist, this big drug heist, as it were. The film essentially is all about bringing drugs across borders and getting them to certain supply chains and such. That's the short end of it. It's all about drug dealing. But the film itself, you see all these pop culture references like you do in any Tarantino film. And it's just fun from the start. You And Pam Greer is just having the time of her life in this film. One of my favourite moments is the practice run for the heist itself, where she's working undercover for the LAPD. But at the same time, she's also out for herself at the same time. But she's pretending to be on Ordell's side. And I just, I think it's just brilliant. There's a character called Sharonda, who's one of the many sort of henchmen women under Ordell's group of people that he has at his fingertips. And the practice run goes quite strangely well. <laughs> and we, you know, we see the actual heist itself. I love the process of the hiding the drugs, the bags of drugs into the bags in this shopping center, in this changing room with swapping it for money. And ultimately, Jackie Brown gets out with Robert Forster, plays a character called Max Cherry, a bail bondsman who we're introduced to at the beginning of the film. He forms a very close relationship with Jackie Brown. And they hit it off really well. And ultimately, the film is a love story between them at one point. But at the same time, you know, you've got them trying to pull off this heist of getting money and tricking everyone else into thinking they're working for them. And really, Jackie Brown is a law to herself. She is a standout character. There's some brilliant points. You know, the opening sequence played to the tune of Across 110th Street by Bobby Womack and Peace, where you just follow constantly you cut a couple of times but you follow constantly across like a travelator and then as she runs down to the departure gate as a flight attendant it's a brilliantly cool opening and it's very 70s like and the title font of jackie brown it's very 70s even though it's set in the 90s you've got that strange black exploitation feel to it because that's the sort of thing tarantino has imbibed into the these kind of films that he makes especially with the likes of pam greer who's the star of those kind of films the other thing as well the song street life by randy crawford another brilliant highlight from the soundtrack such a cool swishing song and then on top of that you have what i would call the love theme you don't get very much scored music in a tarantino piece you get a little bit but most of the time it's pop songs that underpin his work and didn't i Blow Your Mind This Time by the Delaphonics, which is brought up in conversation between Max Cherry and Jackie Brown. It becomes their love theme, and I really do like that, and that's the thing that surmises their relationship together, really makes it solid, is we're going to get this money, and didn't I blow your mind this time? It really fits well with the Jackie Brown trying to prove a point, didn't I blow your mind this time? Brilliant meaning between the soundtrack and the actual story at part. And it's just a bit of fun from start to finish. It's a long film, but the stylistics in there of Tarantino and everything, there's some blood, there's some shooting, there's some swearing as well, obviously. But at the end of the day, Jackie Brown is my number one pick for the 1990s. I absolutely love it. Couldn't compare Jackie Brown to any other of Tarantino's films. It's unique in so many ways. But yeah, that's it for my episode on the 1990s, really, guys. So just a quick recap. Wild at Heart, 1990, directed by David Lynch. Ghost, directed by Jerry Zucker, 1990. In at number three is Batman Returns, the Tim Burton film from 1992. In at number two is Toy Story number two, released in 1999. And then finally, in at number one is the Quentin Tarantino film, 1997, 
Jackie Brown. I hope you've enjoyed my picks today, guys, and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode where I shall be discussing five more films, this time from the 2000s. We'll be getting very close to the present day now, so I look forward to hearing what you think about these films and the next ones. And that's a wrap on Take 97, the 1990s edition of the podcast, and I'll see you next time, guys. See you later.